0: We'll be continuing our study today in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, writing this letter to a group of young Christians, he had spent a very little amount of time in Thessalonica, but long enough to see some people come to faith in Jesus. God seemed to bless his efforts every place that he went. And as he preached the truth and told the glorious gospel that God loves People that even though they've sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that God loved them, that He loved them so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross to take the punishment for their sin. Then He rose again in order to give them new life, resurrection life, new life in Christ. And and they received that message. And isn't it strange that people's lives can change, radically change just by hearing the truth, and receiving that truth. Believing it and receiving Jesus as their Savior. That's what happened. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to you. If you're a Christian, that's the way you became a Christian. It wasn't by joining the church. It wasn't by getting baptized. Those those things you did after you became a Christian, it was uh, because you trusted Jesus. An act of simple but meaningful, genuine faith. And so Paul, in writing to these Thessalonians, he says to them uh, a lot of things that he said, but then he comes to chapter 4, and he addresses something that we need to hear again in our culture. And it almost, even as I've worked on this message this week, actually the last couple of weeks, I thought this is... This sounds almost strange today. But you'll see what I'm talking about. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So he says, I... I want to conclude this exhortation I'm giving to you to urge you that just like we taught you how you're to walk. And I know that you are walking in that way, but you need to do it even more and more. And I just want to take just a minute here. You know, when it comes to Christianity, there is talk and there's walk. It's easy to talk. In fact, there's lots of people that talk Christianity. But the Bible makes it clear that it's not our talking that God is as concerned about as it is our walking. The early Christians referred to becoming a Christian as as being followers of the way. The way Jesus was called the way. He said, I am the way. And so to become a Christian was to be a follower of the way. But the way you follow in the way is by walking. You take one step at a time in a right direction. And, uh, and, and the Christian life is referred to as a walk. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. We're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. So our walk as Christians is part of what distinguishes us From unbelievers, and it's not—it's not our church attendance that distinguishes us from unbelievers. Unbelievers actually don't see you in church, so they don't know you're in church. They don't care whether you're in church or not. And if you say, "Well, I went to church Sunday," they think, "Well, good for you. I hope you stayed awake. I hope you do too today." But the fact is. What unbelievers watch is our walk. And if we are in our workplace, and we are walking just like everybody else in the world, then it doesn't matter what we say. Our talk is meaningless to those who are watching our walk. That all makes sense, doesn't it? Now, part of our walk has to do with our attitudes, our responses, and things like that. But then part of it has to do with the choices that we make in regard to moral purity in our life. So verse 2 in this passage says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. I don't, couldn't tell you how many times over the years people have come to me and said, Could you help me know God's will for my life? And I know that usually what they mean by that is how am I going to know who to marry and what kind of job to have and where to live and things like that. And the Bible doesn't really give us specifics on that, but the Bible does tell us what the will of God is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that's kind of unfortunate in a way because we don't use that word a lot, do we? Sanctification. It comes from the word that means holy, holy living. When I was growing up, there were a group of people that were called holiness people, and everybody made fun of them. Now, part of the reason they made fun of them is because some of their practices in the church services were kind of uh, a little bit extreme. But the main reason they made fun, fun of them is because they wanted to be holy. They wanted to be holy people. We had one boy that went to our school when I was in high school. His name was Carlos Doris and he he was a member of the Holiness Church. And everybody kind of laughed at him and made fun of him because he didn't talk ugly like so many of the other boys did. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't do lots of other things. But he also didn't judge, and he didn't complain. He didn't criticize others. He was helpful and kind. And I always thought it was strange that very few people wanted to be around him. His very presence around them made them feel uncomfortable. Have you ever ever been around somebody that because they were just so good, they made you feel bad? Well, we don't try to make people feel bad. Shouldn't try to make people feel bad. But we ought to say, I want to please God. I want to do God's will. And he says, God's will is your holy living. That you abstain from sexual immorality. and not that just kind of a weird message today? I mean... People who abstain from sexual immorality today are thought to be strange, aren't they? I mean, high school students even, but especially by, college, by the time they're in college, people almost expect to be involved in sexual immorality. And then so many people, even after they're married, are still involved in immorality. Now, what is it? What is sexual immorality? The actual Greek word here, you'll recognize it just like that. It's the word pornea. Pornea. So we hear one form of sexual immorality in it pornography. But actually, pornea means having intimacy, sexual intimacy, with anyone that isn't, that you're not married to. That's basically what it means. So for high school students, college students, people who are not married, it means I abstain from that kind of activity until I am married to the person that I'm committing myself to in covenant relationship. It not only means that I abstain from it in practice but i abstain from it virtually i abstain from it in imagination i abstain from it in on the internet or any other place i abstain from sexual immorality and why is this so important because it's the will of god it is god's will And it also pleases God. So so if somebody says, why should I abstain? I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why people don't abstain. One, they say, well, the drive is just so strong. Well, that's no excuse, is it? Others say, well, everybody is doing it. That's no excuse in the first place. Not everybody is doing it. There are people who are obeying God pleasing God and doing the will of God, and they are abstaining from immorality. And I could give you lots of reasons why you should, but let me just go ahead with the message that I I have for this morning. Uh, Let me go ahead with the rest of the text. Abstain from sexual immorality, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, and in honor. In other words, God says, you have a responsibility to control your own body in a way that is holy before God and a way that is honorable among other people. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. To ask you this question. Young people, single people, married people. Do you know God? He said people who don't know God, like the Gentiles who don't know God, they practice immorality. But he says, you know God. <clears throat> and therefore, you should <coughs> possess and control your body in holiness and in honor continue that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Well, there's that word, that holiness, just appears over and over and over again in this passage, doesn't it? And by the way, it does all throughout the Bible. We worship a holy God. We sang when we opened our service, a holy, holy, holy. This is the primary attribute of God. And we read about him in the holy scriptures. And we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And God calls us his holy people. And then he tells us that our walk is to be a holy walk. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not men, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So... Why? Why should we live a pure and a clean and a holy life in the area of sexual relations and intimacy? Well, and of course, for one thing, we already said, because it pleases God. Don't you love to please God? Do you like to have the idea of, of knowing that you please God? when you please somebody, when you really please somebody what how do you know you please them? The look on their face, the wow, thank you so much. I'll just tell you, I love to please my wife, I love to do things to surprise her. I love to kind of figure out what she what I think would really really make her go wow and uh just This last week, I bought some peaches. And I peeled and cut up those peaches. And to be able to take her a bowl of peaches, already pitted and sliced and got a little cottage cheese in it. You know, she likes that, and I don't know why, but she does. And uh, messes up the peaches as far as I'm concerned. But I carried her a bowl in there. She didn't know I was doing it. I walk in, I say, here honey, I brought you some peach. And she it pleased her. And she just, oh thank you, honey, thank you. I love that. Don't you love to do that? Don't you don't you love to please somebody? Jeff, don't you just love to please Elizabeth? Yeah, sure you do. And Elizabeth, you probably love it when he pleases you, don't you? Yeah. And and if we love to please one another, if we love to please our parents, we love to please our children. You, you girls, don't you just love to please your mom? Don't you love to do something? You surprise her. She comes in from a hard day, and you've cleaned the house all up, and you've got things done, and she walks in, and she goes, oh, oh, and she just wants to grab you and hug you and squeeze you and thank you. That happened pretty often. Yeah, okay. And uh, we love to please people that we love. Well, if we love to please people, how much more should we want the approval, the approbation, the, 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 the wow of God? And for the idea of saying, God says, that pleases me. I know I heard somebody say one time that we're not supposed to try to please God. We're supposed to accept his sight. Well, hey, I'm all for it. I've already talked about the gospel. But the Bible said of Jesus, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You think the Father smiled when he said that? And there are several passages in the New Testament where the Bible talks about how that we ought not to please our own self But we please God. And I want to please God. I want to go to bed at night and feel like that I can look up into the face of my heavenly father. And he smiles and says, well done. That pleases me. You say, well, I thought that's for when we die and get to heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, I hope to hear that then, too. But I don't want to wait till I die to feel like God's pleased with my behavior. It's just a serious thing. See, it's a serious thing to say, I want my life to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And one way we do that is by keeping our self clean and pure in our mind, our heart, and certainly in our eyes and in our behavior. Well, that's one reason to please God. The second reason is just to be obedient. This word in verse 2 says, For you know the instructions that we gave to you. That Greek word there for instructions is actually a military term. It's the term that a commanding officer would use when he's actually giving commands to his soldiers, to his troops. And so God is saying to us, Paul is telling us here, I've given you some commands. So you want to obey. Just do what God tells you to do. And then a third reason is just to glorify God. It glorifies God when we practice purity. Now, purity starts in our heart. But by the way, is your heart clean or not? Well, the Bible says that once before you were saved, you lived in uh, sin and dirtiness and filth and debauchery and all this kind of stuff. But now, he says, you have been cleansed you have a new heart you have a clean heart and so if I walk in the cleanliness of that clean heart I'll live clean now if I introduce dirty things into it I won't let the purity of my new heart rule my mind and my behavior So to glorify God. And then a fourth reason to live a pure life, a clean life, a morally pure life is because of the judgment of God. Did you listen to that passage? Let no one transgress this wrong and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, God says, you will not commit this sin and escape the consequences of it. We're told in another place that all other sins are sins that are done outside the body. But this sin, when I act immorally, I'm sinning against my own body. And I'm sinning against other people says let no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter and I just uh, say to young men single men do not try to persuade or entice a, a girlfriend to violate their convictions and the Lord's command and I would say to the girls do not Entice a man to violate his convictions and the Lord's command, because we sin against our brother when we do that. And even as I'm saying these things, I don't know whether it's, uh, it's probably just the devil talking to me, saying, "This is kind of they call it, anachronistic. This is kind of the wrong time." This message would have been great back in the '50s or maybe 40s maybe 30s but these are the these are the 2020s don't you know preacher this is the roaring 20s and this is the time when a call to moral purity falls on deaf ears it almost sounds like uh, you're joking I want to tell you, God's not joking. God's telling you the truth. And God is saying to Christian men, men, you are responsible for what your eyes look at, what your ears listen to. You are responsible to possess your body, your vessel, the Bible says, in holiness and in honor. In holiness and honor. So I just urge you today. That's what Paul, he says, I, I urge you. I, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that you be morally pure. Practice moral purity. Now, there are lots of excuses that I hear for why people don't even take this seriously. But I want to tell you, <clears throat> the consequences of moral impurity, you cannot escape. You cannot escape because the Lord himself, it says, is the one who brings those consequences. And for a person to think, I can just sin in this way and then somehow or another, I'm not ever going to be affected by. it." It sows seeds that you're not even aware of. And it reaps a harvest that you become aware of. So how do we overcome it? Well, I think we know the patience of God. He says, uh, I know you're walking in this to some degree, but I mean, I want you to do it even more and more and more. God is patient with us. God is, is urging us. God is helping us. So we know the patience of God that he's not there to just shame and condemn us. And then we know the power of God. It is the spirit of God who lives in me and in you. He is the spirit of power and of glory. He is the spirit of holiness. And he can give me victory and strength. To live in a world that makes light of this sin to live in a world that actually approves of this sin God can give me the strength and the power by his Holy Spirit to walk in purity and cleanliness of heart and then the last thing is to know the preciousness of God John Piper said I've heard him say it many times the power of sin Is in the promises. That it makes. Sin makes us promises. Do it. You'll like it. Do it. It'll feel good. Do it. Everybody else is doing. The promises that sin makes. That's where the power of sin. Is. Is in its promises. So how do we fight. Those promises. We do it by listening to better promises better promises god also makes us promises and his promises are so so precious and he tells us that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore pleasures much greater than any of the pleasures that sin could provide Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, so what's the most valuable to you? I mean, who in the world would, would eat stale bread moldy stale bread when they could have ah, twinkies <laughs> or they could have steak or they could have something really really good how do we, how do we make our choices it's we look at this is what sin promises and sin always promises the best up front and we never read the fine print God offers to us his best, but his best lasts forever and forever. No fine print. It actually increases more and more, as he says in this passage. So this past week, I found myself singing over and over again a song by Mark Altrogi that I love so much. It says, Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. To know and follow hard after you. To grow as your disciple in the truth. This world is empty Weak and poor compared to knowing you, my Lord. Help me follow hard after you. That's what I would ask. You know, we don't fight sin by focusing on sin. In fact, if you try to fight sin by focusing on sin, it just makes you want to sin. We fight sin by focusing on Jesus. And as we are satisfied with him, then suddenly all the promises of satisfaction of sin become ridiculous. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So my appeal to you today is I urge you That as you've received from us how you ought to walk to please God. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification and that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask you Let it be our prayer to give us a a holy passion. One holy passion. Give us one magnificent obsession. One glorious ambition for our life. To know and to follow hard after you. To turn away from every sin. To lay aside everything that would defile our mind, our heart, our actions. And help us walk in moral purity. For this pleases you. This is your will. This is to walk in obedience to you. It honors you and it honors others. And it allows us to escape the vengeance of a holy God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we'll sing an invitation. And uh, I would say, first of all, do you know God? Do you know him? You say, "Well, well, how would I know? Well, is there in you a longing for holiness? Is there a desire? You cannot know God and not have some desire and longing to obey him and to and to please him. Do you know God? And if you do, then I urge you, as Paul did here, then walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. We don't hear that word much anymore, do we? Holiness. And yet it's it's God's will for my life to live a holy life. So this morning as we sing our invitation, if you need to come in any way to put your trust in Jesus, receive him, become a Christian, then you come. But if you need to come and say, I just I want you to pray for me. I want to have one pure and holy passion. And I want to know and follow hard after God. Then you come.